Revelation chapter 5, and we are going to attempt to, to study this whole chapter tonight in Revelation chapter 5. But what I want to do is chapters 4 and 5 are a unit. They are um, tied together, so they flow together. So what I want us to do is I want us to read chapters 4 and 5 and, and then what we're going to study is, is specifically chapter 5, the 14 verses there. So just follow along with me as I read Revelation chapter 4 and then into Revelation chapter 5 with specific attention given to chapter 5 tonight. So let's read together. Uh, uh, just listen as I read. Revelation chapter 4 verse 1, the Apostle John writes from the Isle of Patmos, 90 AD, 95 AD, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven. And one sat on the throne, and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper, and a sardine or a sardis stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats or thrones, and upon the thrones I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightning and thunderings, and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, and which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before, the, before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf. And the third beast had a face as a man And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and the rest, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying thou art worthy O Lord to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created and I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the back side, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much. Because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders said unto me, 
Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld... And I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and a thousand of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four of twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that lives forever and ever. What a powerful text. What an amazing, vivid imagery that John describes here. Tell me if you've ever heard this. <clears throat> I've titled this lesson tonight, by the way, Worthy is the Lamb. Remember how we study the scriptures? We look for words that are repeated in a passage and then we want to build from that. And quite evidently, this chapter, chapter 5 of Revelation, there are several words that are repeated several times. And one of them is worthy four times. The other is lamb four times. So worthy is the lamb. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion to. Imagine all the people living life in... I can't do it. Living life in peace. You know what I'm talking about. That song from John Lennon, 1971, Imagine. You hear this on commercials. You hear this uh, paraded around. He goes on to say, you say, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. Now that's really cute. Unfortunately, it is the, the ballad of a humanist. And what I mean by humanist is that humanism is ascribing or giving to man something that only belongs to God. And, and what John Lennon is saying in that song, which was a hopeless end result of humanism, 
um, which was demonstrated sadly in John Lennon's own life, having been shot and killed nine years later after writing this song. The big question is, why is this, is this a fantasy that we could somehow build for ourselves a utopia of peace among mankind? It, it fails every time. And, and the desire that John Lennon is singing about is something that is unattainable. It's something that is hopeless. And, and really, if you, if you think about the song, just imagine that there's no heaven. Imagine there's no hell. Just imagine everybody living together in peace, love, and harmony. And you don't have to worry about a God, or you don't have to worry about punishment. You don't have to worry about any of these things. All you simply have to do is just form some big group where we all get to share everything. That's the, that's the ballad of humanism. It's antithetical to the gospel, and it's really hopeless. Uh, it's, it's in stark contrast with what we've just heard about in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. When I think about what John is describing here, there is great glory and hope in what we've just seen. This throne room that John enters into, it's the centermost point in the entire universe from which everything has come into existence. This one singular point, this, this real place where there is a throne and there is one seated upon the throne, from which everything else results from. This God who is seated on the throne is the one who spoke the cosmos into existence out of nothing. Out of nothing. He brought everything into being that is in being. There are 24 thrones surrounding this throne and this one seated upon the throne that is described in dazzling brilliance. These 24 elders are, are representative of the church from which this throne is coming thunder and lightning and voices. What a sound, what a, what a sight. We hear repetitiously power, honor, glory, holy, holy, holy. This is a fearful sight. These seven lamps burning before the throne represents the Holy Spirit of God as described elsewhere in the book of Revelation. There's these four beasts flying around the throne. The lion, one with the face as a lion and a calf and a man and an eagle. And by the way, these cherubim, which we believe that these beasts are, these cherubim as described in Isaiah chapter 6, they are huge. They, they are... They are, they are massive creatures that have been designed and built specifically to worship God around the throne. And we hear repetitiously glory, honor, thanks, glory, honor, power. Revelation 5.12 says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, blessing. This is what's going on in heaven. This, this extolling the Lamb. This is significantly more glorious and hopeful than John Lennon's humanist ballad. We look to Jesus Christ. We look to the one who is worthy. Worthy is the lamb. I love how this chapter starts. John says, I see in the right hand, verse 1, of him that sat upon the throne, God seated upon the throne. He has in his hand, his right hand, a book. A scroll is the word. It's a scroll in his hand. And this writing is described as being on the outside and the inside. It is a scroll that is covered with directives. 
the way John describes this in the, in the original languages, he's describing something of a title deed that would have been well acquainted in the Roman world. It's, it's, it's as though the title deed is in the, the, the right hand of the one seated upon the throne. It's the owner's card. This is the pink slip to everything and everyone. This is the, the first event of the divine outpouring of God's righteous war machine. This is the initial movements of God preparing to dump the wrath of God out upon the world in judgment. This rolled up scroll is sealed. It's, it's, it's in a, if you can picture this, it's not a scroll on the outside where it has seven individual seals. It is a rolled up scroll that has seven seals within. There is a seal, rolled, seal, rolled, seal, rolled. As we're going to see in the remaining chapters, it's not as though this scroll was rolled up with seven seals across it. It is a significant amount of seals that are throughout this scroll. This is the most significant and authoritative display of ownership that has ever been. When you buy a car, you ask the person that you're buying the car from, you say, do you have the title? Right? And they say, well, I think I have it somewhere. No, you have to find the title in order for me to purchase this car from you. Because if you do not have a title, there's legal ramifications that are involved. Either you... or you stole the car, or boat, or whatever it may be, you need to get that title deed. You need to hold it in your hands so that you can prove ownership of whatever it is that you're purchasing. What is significant about this is it is God demonstrating that God owns everything. Psalm 50 verses 10 through 12 say, For every beast of the forest is mine. And the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field. They're all mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. (laughs) That's what God says, the psalmist records. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world is mine and the fullness thereof. He owns it. He owns it all. Exodus 19.5 says, For all the earth is mine. Deuteronomy 10.14, The heaven and the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God. The earth also and all that's therein. Job 41.11, Whatsoever is under the whole heaven is mine. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all they that dwell therein. He owns it all. We we don't necessarily need to see this deed transfer. But what John is recording here, what, what John is showing to us is that there is one who is worthy to own it. There is one who has the, the power and the authority to own it all. Here's the question. In verse 2, I saw a strong angel. A strong angel, these angelic beings that are, that are described in Ezekiel 1 as massive creatures. Huge creatures. They're so big that, that we're warned throughout the Bible of, of worshiping them. We're warned against worshiping them because they're so big and so fearful and so powerful that when human beings encounter angels, they usually hit the ground wrongfully. And we're warned throughout the Bible that don't worship these angels. They did nothing to merit or earn your salvation. And if we were to see an angel, we need to remember that they are huge and powerful masculine creatures. And he asks the strong angel, proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book? 
and to lose the seals thereof. Ask yourself this question. I want you to hear this question. Who is worthy? The strong angel, we don't have a name for him, but Gabriel means the strength of God. Is it an angel who is worthy? Angels are created beings. While they are created with eternality, immortal, they are immortal beings, they do not die. An angel is not worthy. No angel has any hand in redemption at all. So the answer to this question, who is worthy to open the book? It's not an angel. Is it a man? Is it, is it a human being? You, you ask this question when you say, who is worthy? And you consider, is it a man? You instantly have to meet with the truth. Are you joking? There's no way that this is a man. There's no man worthy. There's not one single man on this planet or has ever lived that is worthy. Mankind is created. They are sinful. They are fallen, corrupt. This is a definite no. And by the way, all who are born after Adam, we are lovers of self. We're even tempted to think, ah, you know, I'd be worthy. When, we're, when we are outside of Jesus Christ, we actually would read something like this and say, no, I think I'm pretty good. I think I could do it. We have no comprehension whatsoever of what John is describing here. Even in our regenerate state, when we see these things and we're thinking to ourselves, who is worthy? We forget the finiteness of our existence and the infinite of God. That's what John is emphasizing here. He's saying, who's worthy? The answer, no one. Not a one. Is it one of the elders that we see here in heaven? One of the 24. Again, these elders, these 24 elders are representative of the church. They are representative of the redeemed. No man in heaven, not in earth, neither under the earth was able. That's what's that's what said in verse 3. No man in heaven. There's no man in earth neither under the earth, not even a dead man who's alive in heaven or in hell, was able to open the book. Neither to look on it. If you were to look upon this book and you were to see it with its seals open, you'd be incinerated. No one was worthy. No one was able. I love when the Bible records words like that. You know what ability means? Ability means function. You cannot. It is prohibited. We have no ability to open this book or even look upon it. So what does John do? He's saying, well, then what are we going to do? We're going to sing Imagine. We're going to sing something silly and humanistic like, well, imagine that there's no heaven. Imagine that there's no hell. Imagine there's no borders, no nations, just everybody dwelling together as one. It doesn't answer the question. It doesn't answer the question with what are you going to do with eternity? What are you going to do with after you close your eyes in this world? What are you going to do whenever you have to face God? That's the big question. So what does John do? Every human being in this world comes into this world. They know two things. One, that there is a God. And two, they will meet him. They just don't know how or when. So what does John do? John knows who Christ is. But this image is so fearful for John. What's he begin to do? John the apostle, verse 4, he begins to bawl. He begins to cry. He begins to weep. He is shedding tears with fervent passion. He is, he is saying there's no one that's worthy to open this. 
It's almost as if his mind has been blinded to think, well, I know that Christ would have been worthy. Or what is he thinking in his 90s whenever he's writing this? I wept much because no man was found worthy to open the book. No one, not one. There's none that are worthy. This is the hopelessness of humanity. There is no redemption found outside of the Lamb. There's no redemption found outside of the Lamb, not in one. How will you meet the Father? It's through the Lamb. The Lamb of God. Notice verse number five, second heading. As John is weeping, one of the elders said unto unto me, stop weeping. (laughs) Isn't that a great thing to hear? Weep not. Stop crying. Stop weeping. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. A lion. A lion, a roaring lion with a set of teeth and eyes with penetrating fire. Muscles rippling. Paws designed for killing. A lion. Power. A roaring lion. As John would hear this, as you hear this, This is what the Messiah is referred to in the earliest book of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 49, verses 9 and 10. A lion, a whelp of the tribe of Judah. For the scepter will not depart from Judah. As Jacob is blessing his sons, he gets to Judah. He says, you are a lion's whelp. And the scepter, the ruling rod, shall not depart from Judah. The law from between thy legs. And the, until Shiloh comes, verse 10. Until the Messiah, until the Christ comes. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. The big question is, could this be Christ? Could this be the one who is, who is slain before the foundation of the world? Is this the lion of the tribe of Judah? This is what the elder is saying. Behold the one with power. He also calls him the root of David. Now, now, if we did not know what the lion of the tribe of Judah that's mentioned in the book of Genesis, now we hear something very strikingly close to who Jesus Christ is. He is the root of Jesse. He is the root of David. And that's what's recorded in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse. Jesse is the father of David, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. It shall, to it shall the Gentiles seek. There's a promise in Isaiah of a redemption that the Gentiles could seek, uh, the redemption that could be found for the Gentiles. And his rest shall be glorious, Isaiah records. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, his rest should be glorious. Whose rest? The root of David. Now this is beautiful, and I I want us to slow down and, and just meditate on what John records here. The elder is communicating to John in verse 5, He is the lion, this one who is worthy. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose the seven seals thereof. He's done it. He is worthy. And verse 6 says, And John, I beheld, and lo, in the midst of a throne, of the throne of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, 
stood a lamb. He's referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And John is expecting to see a lion. But he turns and he beholds in the midst of everything, seated upon the throne, in the midst of the 24 thrones and the 24 elders, surrounded by the beasts that are crying out, holy, 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 stands a lamb. And notice this. The lamb stood in the midst on the throne as it had been slain. I mean, let's just think about that for a minute. Here stands the lamb as it had been slain. It had been slain and now this lamb's alive. It bears the marks of being slaughtered. But yet it is alive for it stands in the throne. This is the lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. John looks to see a lion, but he turns to see a lamb. This is just, we don't need any explanation about who this is. We know who the, the lion of the tribe of Judah is. We know who the root of, Jesse, or the root of David is. We know who the lamb of God is slain before the foundation of the world. We don't need any expect, explanation about this. And then John records, this lamb has seven horns. Horns, whenever you read throughout the book of Revelation and the Old Testament, horns are representative of power. Seven is representative of, of completeness. So the power is complete in this lamb that was slain. All power is given to this lamb. It's important for me to emphasize as well that this is referring to like a pet lamb. This isn't a, a wild lamb that would be roaming in a pasture. This is almost like somebody's pet. This is a tender lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. Have you ever seen the paintings depicting this verse? Where painters, especially during the um, post-Reformation era, whenever the Reformation was ignited and, and, and the Reformation was gaining full steam coming out of the 16th century, these paintings were coming back that were vivid and, and, and drawing. And there's old paintings from the 16th and 17th century depicting this image. It's wonderful and beautiful and fearful. These seven spirits of God, again, emphasizing the holiness, the completeness of the Holy Spirit of God, resting upon the Lamb, God sent forth into all the earth. In the midst of the throne is the Lamb. This is the Passover Lamb. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. He bears the scars and the wounds, and yet he's alive. In John chapter 1, I want us to turn to a couple verses, okay? We're going to look at four, and I want us to really, I want us to really see the, what John is emphasizing here, the in the Lamb. Go to John chapter 1, verse 29. John the Baptist is saying in verse 29, John chapter 1, the next day John sees Jesus coming unto him and says, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. 
Turn the page to verse 36. Or look down the page to John chapter 1, verse 36. And looking upon Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Go back to your Old Testament. Look at the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 53, verse 7. Isaiah records in Isaiah 53, verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opens not his mouth. The book of Exodus, chapter 12, verses 3 and 6. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Exodus, chapter 12, verse 3. This is the same idea of the Passover lamb. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 3, we read, Speak you unto the congregation, unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of, the, of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb, a, a pet lamb, a new tender lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. Look at verse 6. And you shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month. You should keep it up for four days. You're going to keep this animal awake for four days. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. There's the Passover. There's the institution of the Passover by Moses, by God, through Moses, when the children of Israel were preparing to leave Egypt. They were dealing with a lamb. Now, one final verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Acts, Romans, 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 7. Paul is writing here. He says, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump. Remember, during the Passover, you could not have leaven in the house at all. You were to eat unleavened bread cooked with bitter herbs and spices. You were to slaughter that Passover lamb and roast him with his entrails inside and either eat the entire thing by the morning or burn it all. And when we see that Paul's talking about purging out the old leaven, he's making an Old Testament reference to to evil, that you should purge out the evil out of the church that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened. How are you unleavened? Because you've been washed in the blood of the lamb. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrifice for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with, verse 8, neither with the leaven of malice and and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I'm headed back to Revelation chapter 5. It's quite clear that the one who is seated upon the throne, the lamb who is worthy, is none other than, than the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God, sent to take away the sin of the world. Worthy is the Lamb. That's our third heading. And that'll take us through verses 8 through 14. Worthy is the Lamb. I want you to notice three things. I want you to see in verses 8 through 10, I want you to see the worship of the elders and the beast. The beasts, plural. I want you to see the worship of the angels give to this lamb. And I want you to see in verses 13 through 14, I want you to see that everything, 
everyone, everywhere is worshiping this lamb. This is the climactic pinnacle of all existence, is the worship of the king of kings. Look at verse 8. And when he had taken the book, the lamb had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before him, before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. Notice that these elders and these beasts, they fell down before the lamb. Why? Because this lamb is worthy. They fell down as a sign of submission, worship, homage. But they're holding something that's interesting. Every one of these 24 elders has harps. No, I do not think when we enter into heaven, and I could be wrong with this, and on that day I will gladly eat my words, we do not receive a harp with our name on it when we get to heaven. This is something specifically attributed to these 24 representatives of the church. But they're holding something, a golden dish, which, is, which was used in Old Testament worship, a saucer or a censer of some kind that would carry or catch blood or that would use wash, water for washing. They're holding this in their hands, but within those saucers or censers are, the end of verse 8, the prayers of the saints are, as an incense burning in a saucer, they are the prayers of the saints burning up and catching into the nostrils of Almighty God. Now, up until this point, I haven't made much application, frankly, because I don't know how you can add to any of this chapter. I mean, essentially, anything that you say about this chapter is no, not going to be anywhere near the magnitude of what John has already described. In the very, in the very least, I'm, I'm pulling from it, which is the, really the last thing that I want to do. I want this text to just speak as it, as it lies. But this is very interesting and should be a reminder to us to never, ever forsake the importance of prayer. I mean, how shoddy is our prayer, our prayer life? I mean, how, how do we, we get this way all the time? We say, we, we start praying selfishly for what we want. And, and we start praying for maybe what somebody else wants. Or we, we pray because we don't feel good. And what I mean by that, I mean emotional feelings. I mean like, so-and-so doesn't like me and I wish that was fixed or or I, I wish that things were easier for me, Lord. How come you can't help me now? And, and we make this prayer life all about us. But, but when we hear about in, in Revelation chapter 5, we're seeing that these 24 elders are holding these censers that contain the incense of the prayers of the saints. What, what kind of prayers are these? And when really, when we burrow down onto this and we're thinking about what kind of prayer is a sweet-smelling odor to the Lord? What, what kind of prayer is it that pleases God when we offer that prayer to God? Surely, it is not a selfish prayer. In fact, James tells us that you, you ask not and you, you have not because you ask amiss. You ask so that you can heap things upon yourself. What I believe that these prayers are referring to are the continual prayers of saints throughout history 
concerned with salvation and redemption. Strictly through the Lamb of God. These prayers that have been offered about salvation. Now, now let me amplify this a little bit. When we pray, because as a believer, as, as uh, J.C. Rao said, he believes that someone who claims to be a Christian and does not pray is not a Christian. He takes it that far. He says, if someone is claiming to be a Christian and they do not pray, then you found a false Christian. That's what J.C. Rao says. I mean, he's a, he wrote a book called um, Something About Prayer. It was a wonderful book. But, but he, he, he describes in that book how important prayer is. And this is what I want to emphasize. When we pray, we often fixate on the temporal. And we say, which is a good thing, we pray for people to be healed. I pray for my little girl's colds to go away. And I pray for, I pray for surgeries to go well. And I pray for people to recover from sickness. And I pray for people to to get the job that they're seeking or, or I pray for people to be in the will of God. But you see, there's a big difference between praying for temporal means and praying that God's will would be done through whatever temporal means come into our lives. Like we have a tendency to say, wait, sickness is bad, injury is bad, and therefore we want to remedy sickness and injury. So we miss the whole picture and we, we miss the fact that we should be praying for, Lord, your will May it be done in whatever this is going, whatever is going on in this person's life. May your will be done. If that means that they die, may your will be done. If that means that the sickness does not allow them to recover and yet you are glorified, praise be to God. I want your will to be done. That's the kind of prayers that we're seeing in these these censers as incense. It's the prayer that seeks the will of God faithfully through the Lamb of God. These are the sweet odors that God is talking about in verse number eight. They're sweet to his ears. He's sweet to his nostrils in an anthropomorphic reference. God does not have nostrils. He is spirit, but but they are pleasing to him. You know why? Because it shows that we trust him in everything. That's, That's what's pleasing to God. We give him thanks and we trust him for everything. Never back away from prayer. Never back away from prayer. It was Martin Lloyd-Jones that said, never ignore the unction to pray. Never. Never ignore the unction to pray. If the Spirit is prodding you to pray, then pray. Never ignore that. How many times do we ignore that? We think, oh, I should pray before I get on the road right now. Eh, it'll be all right. What? Never ignore the unction to pray. And all this, I, I, you know, I don't know about you, but whenever I was studying this chapter, I went through all this wonderful imagery that John is describing, and then all of a sudden there's these prayers in a dish. Isn't that wild? Okay, verse 9. And what did they do? They sung a new song. A new song. Discouragement seems to disappear when we see the power and magnitude of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Christ has the victory and they are singing a new song. Thou art worthy. 
<laughs> Thou art worthy to take the scroll. You're worthy. This lamb is worthy to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain. You were dead no longer and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. These elders are extolling, exalting, praising God, singing a new song for what Jesus has accomplished. Did you catch what he has accomplished? You have redeemed us. There's another reference to why these 24 elders are representative of the church. Because who's the us? The us is the church. You have redeemed us to God. He's not talking about universalism. He's talking about the bride of Christ that has been bought by the blood of God. Out of, out of where? Just the United States? Just Israel? Out of every kindred or every family, every tongue, every people, and every nation. That kind of smashes all these goofy liberation theology ideas that teach that you have to approach cultural uh, needs and necessities with the gospel instead of just preaching the gospel to fallen man. There's no skin color described here. It's every family, every tongue, every people, every nation redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And it doesn't, it doesn't stop there. It keeps getting better. Verse 10, and has made us unto our God kings and priests you should be a a peculiar priesthood peter records and we shall reign on heaven and excuse me we shall reign on earth christ has made us kings and priests we will reign with him as described in revelation chapter 20 verse 4 that the saints shall reign during the millennial kingdom with christ now verses 11 and 12 that was the elders worshiping the lamb now the angels exalt the Lamb. This deserves a whole sermon in and of itself. John says, I beheld and heard the voice. Just picture this as I read this. The voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Literally, he is saying you can't count them. This is an innumerable number. Now, whether you have to close your eyes or whatever it may be, I want you to picture a sea of, of beings. I want you to picture a, a sea, an innumerable amount of creatures and, and people, angels, beasts, the elders, everyone that's around the throne, just at, as far as the eye can see, voices that will praise him. Saying with a loud voice. Can you picture that in your ear and in your eye? As you picture this sea of people covering the hills, covering the fields, covering the valleys. And their voices are saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb. Can you picture the sound of that? Could you picture, well, you know what a stadium sounds like when they're all saying like, here we go Steelers? You know, when, when we hear the, here you go Steelers chant, you, you hear, you kind of get excited the whole group of people is saying the same thing here we go Steelers here we go I can't believe I'm using this illustration right now at all but you can hear that that voice of the multitude now times that by 10,000 times 10,000 thousands of thousands an innumerable multitude of created angels saying worthy 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 is the lamb what it doesn't stop there. You can almost hear it. It's like, worthy is the Lamb. Just deafening roar. 
that was slain to receive power, power, riches, honor, strength, glory. What? This is amazing. Blessing be to the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. All of these multitude of created beings are saying it at the same time, all pointing to Jesus Christ right in the center. This, this, is, this is wonderful. How much better is this than imagine there's no heaven? Are you out of your mind? No, I want to see heaven. I want to see this throne. I want to hear this sound. I want to hear worthy is the Lamb. And every creature, the elders are worshiping, the angels are worshiping, the beasts are worshiping. Nothing can escape the worship of the King of Kings. And verse 13, every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, picture it, blessing, honor, glory, power. Be unto him that sits upon the throne, unto the Lamb forever and ever. <laughs> and the four beasts said, Amen. <laughs> Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that lives forever and ever. Worthy, worthy is the Lamb. Everything that has ever transpired in all of history is revolving around this one who is seated on the throne. Everything in human existence is revolving around this lamb. This is wonderful. <laughs> because this, is, this doesn't, you know, you think you have big problems in your life. I see no big problems in our lives whatsoever when I see chapters like this. When I see the capital L lamb who is on the throne, throne and worthy. Let's look at one more. We have six and a half minutes. Look at Philippians chapter two, verse number nine. Yes, sir. Well, you see, my by mathematical calculations, I think that no. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you have the 12 tribes of Israel and then the 12 apostles, and you add those two together, you get 24. I, I really don't know. I, I think it's... I think we venture into allegory if we press too far into that, because... We don't want to digest something more than what Scripture has said. What we do know is that they're representative of the, of the church. And if we're not careful and we build a theology on that one verse, we're pushing Israel complete, completely out of eschatology. Uh, we're we're going we're gonna to end up with a replacement theology saying that, look, now it's all meshed into one. That all, every time in the Old Testament that you see the word Israel, now we're talking about the church. That's allegory, and that's dangerous, dangerous. Because where do you stop allegory? I mean, now there are allegories 
there are metaphors in the Bible. But every time those metaphors are described in the Bible, there's always a, 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 a interpretation given. Always. So the 24, I don't know. It could be. I could be blatantly wrong on that, but I really don't know what those 24 elders are. Yeah, but yeah, well, we'll have to wait and see through chapters six through 19 to maybe develop a more strong, um, more accurate definition of that. One thing's for certain is I believe that the 24 elders are representative specifically of the church, specifically of the church. Um, Let's look at Philippians chapter two, verse number nine. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, who's him, that's Christ, the Lamb, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's the answer to, to the why. Why all of this? It's for the glory of God the Father through the Son. Then you can apply that to your life. You ask yourself, why am I going through this? Why am I wrestling with this? Why has this happened in my life? You can answer emphatically that God is going to get the glory through this in my life. And, and that sets our eyes upon where they need to be. The one who is on the throne.